get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. This is a Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. A fresh perspective on the day's biggest stories. It's Character and Smallman's Fresh Take. Powered by Schnucks. Eat good to feel great at Schnucks on 101 ESPN. Last week, we talked to Daniel Kaplan of the Sports Business Journal about the proposed loan that NFL owners were scheduled to vote on for Stan Kroenke, $500 million to help finance SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. And yesterday, Michelle, the owners did approve that $500 million loan to Kroenke that will be paid back over the course of the next 30 years. And Kroenke, as we've mentioned, is in his 70s, so he won't be around to pay off the end of that loan. And... I wonder how much revenue is going to be generated by SoFi Stadium and the surrounding 298-acre development. The Rams and Chargers, to help defray some of this debt, were supposed to raise $850 million in PSL money between the two teams. The Chargers have sold $100 million worth of PSLs and none since the pandemic hit. And the Rams are at about 300. The teams together are about halfway home in regards to how much money they're trying to raise of the $850 million. If you're halfway home and this was projected to open in August, that's a bad place to be anyway. Not to mention that now fans might not have the money, the resources to buy these PSLs and they're not going to invest in something that they don't know when they're going to be able to use it. So if they're already at that stage of the game, I bet they're pretty nervous about what it's going to look like moving forward. And think about it from this perspective too. They've been working on selling PSLs for more than a year. And they're they're halfway there, and they're exorbitantly priced. If you, and you can go to the website and see that uh, you've got for uh, the most expensive tickets, the club tickets, you're paying a hundred thousand dollars per PSL, and for a season ticket. Uh, $375 a game. $3,750 for one ticket. So in, you're paying $200,000 per seat for a PSL and about eight grand a year for each ticket. The lowest price is $1,000 at $60 a game, and that's way up in the upper corners, and there are very few of those seats. And to get a decent seat where I was, for example, in the Dome, mm-hmm. a comparable seat at SoFi Stadium, the PSL is $4,000, and the tickets are $1,000 a piece. Wow. So For a season ticket, so $100 a game. Gosh, there's, there's, so, ma- there's so many angles to this. First of all, not surprised that the NFL, you know, agreed to the $500 million for Kroenke. But then it opens the question. I thought that they said that there was a hard line with this. I thought that they said that when St. Louis was asking for, what was it, Randy, $300 million? Right. And Bob McNair, the late owner of the Houston Texans, had told the St. Louis group, we'll get you a $300 million loan. So the St. Louis group puts that in their proposal, and Governor Nixon gets a letter from Roger Goodell saying that $300 million would be fundamentally inconsistent with our G4 program that hmm. we don't give more than $200 million. And then less than a month later, they offered $300 million to San Diego and Oakland to build stadiums in their cities. 
fix was in, Randy. The other thing I wonder about this SoFi project, because it's more than a stadium, it's going to be an entertainment center. There's going to be the NFL Network there, a shopping complex. There's a lot that's involved with this. But I think a lot of the ways that Kroenke and this group thought that they were going to generate revenue might not be there anymore. Not not only fans in the stands to help you generate money for the stadium, but when we look at the pandemic and the way that our habits have changed because of it, the way our consumption habits have changed. I think the shopping experience that we were used to is out the window. How many people have are now not going to grocery stores because they're getting their groceries delivered? You're getting everything delivered to your house now. Not everyone. Some people are still mm-hmm. going out. But you're being more intentional and cautious with, with your purchases. And before this happened, malls across America were vacant. People aren't going to malls the way that they used to. I think it's very unrealistic to think that people are going to drive all the way out to Inglewood to spend thousands of dollars to go to a game and then they're going to shop around and spend a bunch of money on on this item or that item and then I think how many of these businesses that were going to occupy those spaces are going to be in a financial situation where they could do that? What are restaurants going to look like moving forward? So Stan Kroenke could be looking at a, a lot of negatives coming his way with this project. And it is office retail stadium. There's an amphitheater there and you mentioned in L.A. driving to get to that area where it's going to take you at least an hour. And from the office aspect of it, once again, because of the pandemic, one thing that corporate America has learned is we have people that are productive working from home. We mm-hmm. don't need to pay that rent for an office. So if you for brand new space that is going to be really expensive in L.A., are people going to want to do that with airplanes flying overhead every day? That's a great question. Do you think they're panicking yet? Probably with the combination of the the problems that they're having this year and the lurking St. Louis lawsuit, I would think that in those days where they're where they lay their head on their pillow, they say, "Yeah, this isn't going like we expected." And let's point this out: they got a five hundred million dollar loan, and they're selling it as well. It's half Chargers, half Rams. Sure, but. Will they've gotten nine hundred million total? Okay, so the Rams have gotten a four hundred and fifty four hundred and fifty million dollar loan. If we want to put it in those numbers, that would have been what it would have taken for Kroenke to contribute to a stadium in St. Louis. Four hundred and fifty million dollars. Mm-hmm. He could have just done that. He would have made a ton of money, and he wouldn't have had near the headaches that he's going to have now. He deserves the headaches. I'm not saying that. And are we better off with not having that particular owner? Yes. But he's caused himself a lot of headaches, and I think it's great. As much as we are a sports town in St. Louis, as much as we're a football town, you don't want to be in a relationship that somebody where the other party doesn't want to be in a relationship with you. He was never invested in St. Louis. He did everything in his power to trash the city. I mean, we talk about them tanking on the field, potentially. Mm-hmm. so that Oh, they did. Yeah, of course. But so that they could move the team out of town and generate money as much as it hurt for them to leave because we were emotionally invested in the laundry in the long run we're lucky that that happened because you don't want to be in business with a guy like that you don't want your emotions your finances everything that you've invested into a team you don't want it going to a guy like that not at all and he was so unhappy being here that if the league and they weren't his money was going to win out. He wasn't going to be here. Even if the move to L.A. had been rejected, Demoff had told people they had played their last game in St. Louis. So they weren't coming back here. But 
if somehow, some way, they would have been forced to come back here, they would have been an abject failure. They would have been worse than the Cleveland Browns because at least the Cleveland Browns try a little bit, and mm-hmm. they wouldn't. They would have tried as hard as they did when they were here, which is not at all. I'll never forget Kevin Demoff, the video that he probably wishes was never leaked, but he was speaking, I believe, at his old high school, Randy, right? Where he said, unfortunately, we won a few games. Unfortunately, the organization that you you work for won a few games. That tells you all you need to know. I could see that video showing up in a courtroom in St. Louis next year. I hope it does, Randy. I hope it does. Meanwhile... Al Michaels was interviewed by TMZ and said that he... (laughs) Which is amazing. Yeah. TMZ's everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, He says that he's against calling NFL games remotely from his basement or from a studio. He said that would not fly. And I, I... He's done enough that he could say no. He doesn't want to do it that way. But it might be that you just have to do it that way. That might be the way the rules are. That you have no choice if you're a broadcaster but to call the games from somewhere else. Last year in the fall, Buffalo, the Buffalo Sabres, played in Europe. And they left their broadcasters home and their radio broadcasters did the games from a studio. Happens a lot. Heck, it's happening with the Korean Baseball League right now, right? And major league games that open in Japan. ESPN has people doing the games from Bristol. It's certainly not ideal. It's not the optimal situation. But it might be the situation if we have games that you have to use. This was something that networks were doing pre-pandemic, as you mentioned. I know for some college bowl games, that was something that Mm -hmm. announcers would be doing it from Bristol in the studio, watching the games on a monitor. And is it ideal? Of course not. Also playing without fans, not ideal. None of this is ideal, but you're going to have to roll with what is presented to you. You're going to have to do things that are uncomfortable or that aren't exactly how you want them for this to go down. And you're right. A guy like Al Michaels is has enough cachet that if he doesn't want to do that, he doesn't have to. But I know there's a lot of broadcasters, some in our industry that I've spoken to that are part of national broadcast that are saying, give me the equipment. We'll figure it out. I will have my, my wife or my husband or whomever sequester the kids. We will get soundproofing in the room. We will make it happen. Mike Tirico did golf from his basement in Michigan the other day. So it can be done. And football's different than golf, obviously. But my point is, is if they want Mike Tirico to do games, obviously he's willing to do games remotely. I also think without fans in the stands, there's it, it probably makes it a little bit easier because some of the stuff that you need to be in the stadium and in the booth for is to see the way people are reacting to the, to everything. You, you need your eyes a bunch of different places. If you have monitors that are essentially ISOed on different parts of the field and you're not worried about reactions or you're not worried about any other thing going on in the stadium except for what you're seeing on the field, I think it might be easier for a broadcaster. And again, I've never done it. This is just the way that I'm projecting it to be. But you'd think that whichever network or whichever organization that's going to have somebody call the game, they're going to set them up with all those monitors. It'll be it'll be fine. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And they want, like Joe told us yesterday, there's going to be a lot of experimentation, but they want a great program. They don't want to have a suboptimal program on national TV. So they're going to give the broadcasters every tool that's available to them to make it great. And we, you need the players to be involved in that, too. Because right. part of making it great is players buying in and doing potential sideline interviews or something after a game. Just something to enhance the viewing experience. Okay. Uh, going to put you on the spot here. Okay. Say something nice about Stan Kroenke. No. <laughs> Coming up. Uh, Can you? Can you? Um, 
okay, when the late, great Brian Burwell was sick, apparently he got in touch with his family and said that they were praying for you or something like that. Uh, or he had a representative at least do it. I guess I would say thank you for, despite all of the money you have, refusing to get a good toupee because it makes people in St. Louis laugh. Makes it a lot more fun for yeah, us. Thank you for that joy. <laughs> Next up, we're going to head into the Blues booth with our buddy Darren Pang. He's next on 101 ESPN. This is Carriker and Smallman. We're talking everything St. Louis Blues as we head into the Blues booth. The Blues booth presented by Boardwalk Hardwood Floors. The home show sale is going on now at Boardwalk Hardwood Floors. Update your home with savings on all types of flooring, including solid, reclaimed, wide plank, and more. Visit one of the showrooms in Crestwood, Manchester, St. Peter's, or online at BoardwalkHardwood.com. Boardwalk Hardwood Floors. Great floors for every home with better selection, better value, and the best service. Our friend Darren Pang is with us on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line on 101 ESPN as uh, we await, hopefully, the restart of Blues Hockey. Panger, how are you doing this morning? Good to have you with us. I'm doing well. Uh, how are you guys doing this morning? A little uh, rain, a little drizzly out there, but... Uh... Yeah, but I agree with you. I think uh, I think we're all, you know, anticipating uh, and hopeful that uh, that they can sort things out and you know and get some kind of sports on on the television side anyway. Panger, it was uh, just a year ago yesterday that the Blues took a three-two lead over San Jose with that five-nothing win in San Jose, and then they came back and they they hammered them five to one, and. The Blues really just, they pounded the Sharks into submission. And we've had a lot of playoff series here that were really physical. But I don't know that I've seen a series where one team had such a dramatic physical advantage over the other in terms of just hitting and hitting and hitting and not getting hit back very often. You know what, Randy? I, you know, my early years of, of, of being here, it's my, it's my 11th year now. And we went through a couple of phases where, we had a heavy fourth line. Ryan Reeves was part of that fourth line. And, and then we went through another phase where we had the Brodjack, Upshaw, and Ryan Reeves as, as, as a fourth line. And um, there were series against, you know, the L.A. Kings, I can recall. that It was just, it was incredibly physical. And, and if the Blues were to have gotten by those series with L.A., I believe that they, that they could have won a Stanley Cup in that time. But this was, this was a different way of playing, in my opinion. I, I, I've grown up uh, with some great coaches and I've been fortunate enough at, at younger levels to, you know, to win championships. And, and it's, you can feel what it's like, even as a broadcaster with the St. Louis blues, we, we could all feel there was something special. Every player knew what their job was. Every player, um, they didn't cheat what the system was going to be. And, and, and Craig Berube is a coach that I would love to play for. Um, it's very simple. You play well, you play hard, you get rewarded. That's just it. The facts. And I, I just, thought that that series against San Jose epitomized what this team was all about. They, you know, they knew that San Jose was hurting Randy. They knew that they had key players that were, you know, one hit from being out, uh, including Eric Carlson, including Joel Pavelski as, as examples. And, and they still didn't stop. They just kept pounding and pounding and pounding. And, and you knew that, that San Jose, they were hanging on a thread and uh, you couldn't take them back together. And the blues just, they just seemed like they were full steam ahead and, and, and you know, and, and on the same page. So um, it was one of the most complete and dominating, you know, performances in a conference final that, that you 
um, and I have seen, I'm sure, in, in a long time, no matter what team you're cheering for or looking at. And, and that, that's, to me, what was so impressive about heading into the final is how they played in those key games to, to finish off the San Jose Sharks. Panger, you mentioned Craig Bruby, and earlier in the show we were talking about a great piece that Ben Fredrickson has at STL today about Craig Bruby and Jeremy Rona getting in a fight. And we were debating this earlier, so I want to bring you in to the conversation. We know there's a lot of tough guys out there on the ice for the St. Louis Blues, but I'm kind of inclined to think that Craig Bruby still might be the toughest guy in the organization. <laughs> well, you know, Kelly Chase still, still does some work with us. I yeah. think for sure both of those two are... Uh, um, the, the toughest by far. I, I guess there's just something about Craig, and, and it's um, not not that our careers are intertwined, but there was a there was a time, and I'll, I'll share the story with you. In 1986, 87, that's a long time ago. <laughs> a lot of the listeners weren't even probably born then. But um, I, I was I was in the American Hockey League playing for the Halifax, so I think they're the Nova Scotia uh, Oilers, and uh, we we played a game against the Hershey Bears. And afterwards, everybody went to the same bar. And if you've never been to Halifax, you're, you're missing out. It's a really fun town and real college atmosphere, live bands all the time. And, and when we got there, you know, I didn't know Craig at all. I didn't know Chief, but a bunch of my buddies knew Chief, and they said he was a great guy. Uh, so we were all at the bar together. And one of the referees that refereed at the game, he, he had a beef with him, and he wanted to fight him. And so we're all having a good time and, you know, game's over. And some of us pulled the referee outside and told him to buzz off. And we pulled in Chief back in. And, and it was kind of from that point on that, you know, that I, I got to hear better stories of him. Dave Poulin's a very good friend of mine. And I played, I was his goalie coach at Notre Dame for three years. And he played for, with Chief for many, many years. And he would tell me what kind of a great guy and what a stand-up person and how honorable he is. And, and to have the opportunity as a broadcaster to be around him every day, it, it honestly, it's been special because he, there's nothing special about him. That's what's special. He's just an everyday, normal guy that treats everybody, as you guys well know, treats everybody with respect. He says hello. He does his thing. And, uh, and so I, I think in St. Louis, we are just so lucky to have Chief uh, as a coach and as a person. I think he's the perfect guy to lead this team. Panger, you got to think that that ref was probably feeling uh, a sense of false confidence. I can't imagine that you would want to go in there and fight Craig Berube. Well, yeah, you know, the thing about Craig, too, is is uh, like Chief will just do some things to kind of to rib you along a little bit, if you know what I mean. He'll just kind of he'll say something like, uh, yeah, Tiger, Tiger Woods, isn't, he's, not, he's not a very good putter. And he'll look and, you know, and I know he's. I know he's saying something to get something more. I mean, I'm like, what was that? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I've been watching Tiger. He's not a very good putter. And then he just tries to egg you on and keep you going a little bit. And and, uh, and then I can imagine him on the ice. You know, if you were a friend of his, you'd look at him and you are, you'd be like, is he serious? Is he going to pop me? Is he, he going to grab me? <laughs> is he going to go or is he just fooling around here? So I think he's a, he's a tough customer to... Uh, to figure out because he's got a good sense of humor about him and he always tries to lead you on in another direction. Panger, it's been a couple of months now, more than two months, since the Blues last played a game March 11th, that game in Anaheim. And obviously a lot of these Blues players, they haven't been on the ice, but they haven't really had a gym to work out at either. Of the Blues players, and we assume that they're going to come back in good shape, but which player do you think, based on your knowledge of the group, will come back in the best shape? Oh, we, we, there's so many really good good athletes. Uh, I've had a chance to play a little bit of golf with with some of the guys, um, and they all seem to be in pretty good shape. Uh, 
um, you know, you've had to carry your golf bag for the first little while because golf carts weren't available. So you got to lug that bag around and they all seem like they're in pretty good shape to me. Uh, I happened to run into Colton Preco the other day, and I just asked him, "Hey, did you have a, do you have a gym? Do you have a, like, what have you been doing? Like, what, what, how have you been working?" And he goes, "Well, I don't have a gym. I, but I've got a bike, and I, and I bike, and I'm looking at this guy, and it's like he's still in, in, um, in incredible shape. So these guys have found a way, Randy. To some of them have bought Peloton bikes. The guys early that bought those bikes, uh, they kind of, you know, they, they, they beat the rush. A lot of guys went to order them afterwards." And, and they weren't available. As, as everybody knows, it has tried to order some stuff. I mean, the demand, incredible, especially for athletes like that. And so other guys have just bought regular bikes. So, you know, the biking, the rollerblading, um, you know, getting more, you know, more of the free weights and doing stuff that uh, their trainers online, the, the, the Blues training staff, uh, obviously giving them uh, a routine. So I, who would be in the best shape coming back? There's always natural guys, and I haven't seen Jaden Schwartz because he went back to Saskatchewan, but I, I think he's that kind of guy that mm-hmm. more of the smaller stature that he's got that hockey body, and he'd just come back in and jump on the ice and be like, oh, there he goes. Um, you know, so I, I think Colton Preco's a guy that would just jump on the ice anyway, and he'd just be flying around there. He's, he seems to be just a machine, um, and and, uh, and the way he skates and his cardiovascular is just incredible. So. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, w- I would think those guys, and I would, you would hope that the younger players too, I mean, <laughs> are keeping themselves in, in the best shape of their lives if, if, at, at all possible because, you know, they're going to come back here and they're going to have an opportunity with the, maybe the older players ready taking a little bit more time to get back into it. Um, you can't expect a guy like Alexander Steen to just jump back into it. Right. Although he'll be in great shape. You know, you expect the energy of the younger players to come in and carry you for the first little bit until the until the veterans get their get their legs underneath them. I heard a story that at the end of training camp, Ryan O'Reilly dropped off his car for repairs and the dealership offered him mm-hmm. either a ride home or a loaner and he said, no, I'll just run home. So there's Ryan That's O'Reilly true. randomly, the, the Conn Smythe winner, running uh, down sidewalks in St. Louis, running home because he's, he's not going to take a loaner or anything. So he's another guy that I can see being out there on the streets running oh, yeah. and keeping himself in great shape. Absolutely. That was actually me. I, I, I stopped the car. It was about 105 degrees. It was down McKnight. And he obviously was coming from either Manchester and, and, and McKnight. Um, and uh, I, I look over to my left and I'm like, <laughs> I yelled out there, hey, ROR, what are you doing? He's just, just trying to get, get some weight off me. And, and he's running and he's sweating. And I said, here, let me give you a drive back. He goes, no, no, got to get it done. <laughs> I, I thought that was perfect. <laughs> That's fantastic. Panger, we're sweating off a couple of cold ones, you know? Yeah, uh, <laughs> hey, he's a hockey player, right? That's exactly right. If you're going to if you're gonna have a couple of cold ones, you better sweat it off in the morning. You betcha. Panger, always good to hear your voice. Thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a great day, guys. You too. That's the great Darren Pang, Blues analyst for Fox Sports Midwest, with us in the Blues booth here on 101 ESPN. I love that Ryan O'Reilly story. Isn't that great? Yeah, just sweating off a few pounds and you know, just just the nicest guy in the world. That's the thing about hockey players. Athletes oftentimes are very protected. They, you know, are in their, these kind of silos. Hockey players are just running down McKnight. Yeah, isn't They're that just, great? Just like us, <laughs> trying to sweat off a, a beer or two. Yeah. Done, I've uh, taken my bike when I've taken my car in for service and ridden my bike home. But, man, it would take me hours to run home or walk home. You could do it. 
I could, but that doesn't mean I would choose to. <laughs> That's Michelle. I'm That's Randy. That's the difference. Coming up next here on 101 ESPN, we've got the fight. Do we have a fighter already? We do have a fighter. That's a good thing. Uh, because the fight, we need a fighter to have a fight. <laughs> and that's coming your way next on 101 ESPN. Think you can beat down Character? We sure hope you can. The Fight with Character, Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs on 101 ESPN. Welcome back to Carriker and Smallman here on 101 ESPN, 835 in the morning. And that means it's time for one thing and one thing only. It's the fight. And before we bring in our challenger today, let's welcome in Tommy Freeze Pops. Freeze Pops, what are we fighting for today? We are fighting for a chance to win a gift card to BT's local restaurant pick of the week, Cyberg's. Experience Cyberg's famous wing sauce. All Missouri Cyberg's locations are now open for dine-in with limited seating following guidelines and social distancing while still offering carryout and curbside pickup. We also have a chance for you to score that gift card all week long on the 101 ESPN app. For everyone not playing in the fight today, enter the code word BT. Two letters, BT. Very easy. <laughs> Go get your chance to win a gift card. Download that app. It's free. Type in two letters. You got your chance to win a gift card. Perfect. Sounds, I might do it myself, I although I don't say, think I'm eligible. Are we eligible? No, I, I, we're definitely not. We need to get a ringer in there for us so we can be <laughs> eligible to win. Um, Colin is here. He is our stats and info guy here for the fight. Colin, what is Randy's record sitting at now that we're in, what, week three of the show? Week three of the show, the middle of week three as we try to get over hump day right here, but <laughs> Randy... Randy won yesterday, so he's up to 10-2 and two overall. Okay. But he took a little bit of a hit. He actually answered two incorrect questions yesterday. That is how many incorrect answers he had the entirety of this version of the fight. So he is now at 44 of 48 overall answering questions. Still pretty good stats there. Not too bad. Not too bad. All right, our challenger today is Chris. Chris, good morning. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. You ready to go? Good answer. Question number one. Who was the Rangers pitcher David Freeze hit the game-winning home run off of in Game 6 of the 2011 World Series? Was it C.J. Wilson, Mark Lowe, or Darren O'Day? Um, C.J. Wilson. Question number two. Which major league club did Mike Matheny begin his playing career with? Was it the Oakland Athletics, the Toronto Blue Jays, or the Milwaukee Brewers? Let's say the athletics. Question number three, Chris. Which NFC division has Chase Daniel not played in? The NFC South, NFC West, or NFC North? It would be the NFC West. Question number four. The football Cardinals' final playoff game as the St. Louis Cardinals came in the 1982 season. Who did they lose to? Was it the Minnesota Vikings, the Los Angeles Rams, or the Green Bay Packers? Uh, I guess we'll say the Vikings. All right. Colin is on his way out to get Randy. Freeze how's it been coming up with these questions? 
<laughs> you know, it's sort of weird. I, I look for little things on the internet that spark things, and I get go down these Wikipedia rabbit holes, <laughs> and I don't know. It, it, it's kind of fun. I mean, I like sports trivia, so I, I, I like it. I, I hope I'm doing an okay job. You are. Randy you, will be the judge of that. Though. You are. And, it, you know, when I used to do it, you learn something new every day when you're putting these questions together. Oh, yeah. Big time. Big time. Randy is here. Randy, say hello to Chris, your challenger. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? Doing good. How are you? Everything's great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. Freeze Pops, were you going to say one more thing? Freeze Pops is good. Uh, No, I'm just saying I've been enjoying putting together the questions. I like it. Good. Ready? I'm ready. (laughs) This is a tough one. Okay. And you'd think it wouldn't be so tough once you hear the question. Who is the Rangers pitcher David Freeze hit the game-winning home run off of in Game 6 of the 2011 World Series? Well, seeing as less than 12 hours ago, I actually <laughs> I know, watched I it happen. <laughs> it was Mark Lowe of the Rangers. But prior to watching the game last Question night, number would you have known that? Yes, I would. Okay, okay. See, I, did, I thought, wow, I've watched that game that many times. I should be able to recall <laughs> this information. Question number two. Which major league club did Mike Matheny begin his playing career with? He actually started with the Brewers, and... If you ever get the chance, go to YouTube and type in Mike Matheny uh, hit by pitch. He got hit in the face with a pitched oh. ball and didn't even go down. He knocked teeth out and he didn't even go down. Wow. He's a tough guy. I would still be recovering from that. Question number three, Randy. Which <laughs> NFC division has Chase Daniel not played in? NFC division. So he's played with the Bears. He's played with the Saints. He's played with the Eagles, but he's never played, I guess, for the Niners or the Rams or the Seahawks or the Cardinals. So I'm going to say that the NFC West would be the division that he has never played. The NFC division that he's never played in. Question number four, Randy. The football Cardinals' final playoff game as the St. Louis Cardinals came in the 1982 season. Who did they lose to? Do you want a story from Uncle Randy? Always, Randy. Let me settle in here. So the <laughs> Cardinals, they won, uh, the, they got the playoff spot. It was a strike-shortened season, so they went 5-4-1. and one, So they barely made the playoffs. They're flying into Green Bay, and their charter airplane an icy runway goes off the edge of the runway. Everybody went crazy. They thought they were going to die. It was horrible. And they had to... It wasn't a horrible crash or anything, but the plane actually landed off of the runway in Appleton, Wisconsin. And so they had to get all the players off, get them on the tarmac and onto the bus, which is standard operating procedure, except normally your plane isn't off of the the runway. And uh, so they, they were all shaken, and then they went into Green Bay the next day. Uh, and lost to the Packers in that playoff game. But it was the Green Bay Packers that they they lost to in that playoff game. So are we blaming the plane? Yes, okay. totally. Good to know. Blame the plane. <laughs> we have a winner. Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! The winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. Sorry, Chris, he beat you. Clean sweep, 4-1 to one in favor of Randy. Mark Lowe was the pitcher that David Freeze hit the game-winning home run off of in Game 6 of the 2011 World Series. See, I should know that because I've watched that game so many times, but right. those details don't matter. And he only you pitched know? to one hitter. It's unbelievable. Um, Mike Matheny began his playing career with the Milwaukee Brewers. Chase Daniel has not played in the NFC West. And the football Cardinals 
lo- or their final playoff game as the St. Louis Cardinals. They lost to the Green Bay Packers 41 to 16 at Lambeau Field, as Randy said. Chris, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for playing. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. I am, uh, by the way, I'll tell you, it's 842, your time check, brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers. And uh, I am, okay, just go to uh, Mike Matheny, hit in mouth. And uh, it's, it, it, it hurts me. It's unbelievable. He got hit in the face and he just stood there. It was great. Tough Did he guy. look back at the pitcher? No, it spun him backwards, and then the umpire comes over and uh, is concerned about him. And then they had to w- walk Mike off. He left the game, but he just he didn't go to the ground when hit by a baseball in the face with a pitch. Tough guy. No doubt about it. Coming up as we roll on in this edition of Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN, Horace Grant not happy with some of the things that Michael Jordan had to say in The Last Dance. That's next on 101 ESPN. Michelle and Randy with you. It is Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. And yesterday, Horace Grant, the former Chicago Bulls power forward, joined Cap and Company on ESPN 1000 in Chicago. And at the conclusion now of the 10-part documentary that we, by the way, loved, uh, Horace Grant was none too happy. And one of the things that he was really unhappy with was that in the 90s, Sam Smith, then of the Chicago Tribune, wrote a book called The Jordan Rules. And during the documentary, Michael Jordan said that he didn't deny the things that happened that were written in the book. He just said that Horace Grant was the leak for the book. And Horace Grant was asked how he responded to that statement. Michael says, oh, yeah, Horace was the leak. He's the one that went to Sam Smith and gave him all that stuff for the Jordan Rules. The floor is yours. How do you respond to that? Kev, as I, I stated to everybody, that is a a downright, outright, completely lie. Lie, lie, lie. And as I stated, if MJ had a grudge with me, let's settle it like, man, let's talk about it, or we can settle, settle it another way. But yet and still, he goes out and put this lie out that I was the source behind. Sam and I, have always been great friends. We're still great friends. But the sanctity of that locker room, I would never put anything personal out there. That is interesting and believable. I don't know why he would have to lie about it now. If he was, in right. fact, the leak and everybody knew he was the leak, maybe he's trying to protect the relationships that he still has with some of his teammates from that era. But I also think some of those guys now, looking back on it, if he, in fact, was the leak... I wouldn't be mad about that. All these years removed. But I do think it's interesting to hear Horace Grant, to hear some of these guys come out and talk about this because this was a Jordan-driven documentary. Not only was it about him, but he had final say on all of this. And it doesn't get made without him having final say on all of this. And if we've learned anything about Michael Jordan over the past five weekends, it is that he manifests slights, even if it's a small slight that does exist, he blows it up into a mountain. And I don't know if this documentary wasn't his chance to exact some revenge on some slights that he perceived to be thrown his way throughout his career that he now can't do on the court. And Horace Grant talked about that and how he wonders if some of that was at play here in this Jordan doc. It's only a grudge, man. I'm telling you, it was only a grudge. And I think he proved that during this so-called documentary when if you say something about him, he's going to cut you off. He's going to try to destroy your character. I mean, you know, Charles Barkley, they've been friends for over 20, 30 years, and he 
said something about uh, Michael's um, uh, management uh, with the Charlotte Bobcats or the Charlotte Hornets, and then they haven't spoken since then. My point is that he said I was a snitch, but yet and still after 30 or uh, 35 years, he brings up his rookie year going into uh, one of his teammates' room, his former teammates' room, and saying coke and weed and women. My point is, why in the hell did he want to bring that up? What What's that got to do with anything? If you, if you want to call somebody a snitch, that's a damn snitch right there. It did, however, go to what Jordan walked into with the Bulls. And, again, it's 35 years later, so I... I don't have any trouble with him snitching either, if uh, if you want to call it that. He was describing what he was walking into as a rookie in the NBA with that team. And actually, I, I think this is much ado about nothing. I don't think that uh, the thing is, Jordan, obviously, Sam Smith didn't tell Jordan who his source was for that book. That was probably something that Michael should not have said, unless he knew definitively that Horace Grant was the source for Sam Sam Smith. Yeah, I agree, but he might feel like he does. And there is kind of a double standard here where he's saying, I'm just telling you my life experience Mm -hmm. and what I observed. Now, he's doing it in a way that it's it's very transparent. It's Michael Jordan telling you about his experience. So I could see why he would be upset that even though someone else is telling a reporter about their experience, that they're hiding behind uh, the the source mm-hmm. title. There's the anonymous factor to that. I could see how that could really bother him. So I, I get what Horace Grant is saying about Michael Snit quote-unquote snitching, but he, he was forthcoming. He said, hey, this is what I saw. This is what I dealt with. He's not hiding behind anything. And we don't know that there's something that only Horace Grant and Michael Jordan know that was in the book. That Michael would say, okay, well, he's good friends with Sam Smith. This was in there, and I know that he and I are the only ones that know that. And so he has to be the guy. And Sam Smith is a great reporter. And I I guarantee you that he had tons of sources for that book. You don't get all of that information for a whole book from one guy. That is a great point because, well, it's not great reporting, first of all, because, yes, you want to take someone at their word, but then you need other people to back it Mm -hmm. up, especially if it's about Michael Jordan and you're working in Chicago and you have access to this team. If you're going to publish a book like that, you better be sure that you have it all right. And it was an anti-Michael book, but he never denied it. So he could have easily at that time or during this documentary saying, no, that didn't happen. That was wrong. But there was no denial there. Interesting. And while that was an anti-Jordan book, we can definitively say The Last Dance was a (laughs) pro-Jordan documentary. It was propaganda in a lot of ways. But it was, I mean, I really enjoyed it. So I'm not going to knock it. But it is interesting. I wonder what this documentary would have looked like if Jordan didn't have final say, if he contributed and kind of oh. left, left it out to the directors and the producers to say, I'm going to let you tell this story from a lot of different vantage points. And I thought it was interesting. I think Horace Grant has an interesting point because, yes, it's very pro-Jordan and he had final say. But it's interesting to me that if he had final say that he would have kept some of this stuff in, especially given the relationships he had with people. The way Dennis Rodman 
Friedman was portrayed was favorable. Mm-hmm. It was, he was a wild card, but that's just Dennis. He got his, his work done on the field. Scotty Pippen, who we know was right there with Jordan during all of this, and for all intents and purposes, we think that they still have a good relationship. He was portrayed negatively in a lot of different ways. They, they talked about his salary dispute. They talked about him refusing to go back into the game. I I'm interested to know why Jordan wanted to keep some of that in, and Horace Grant talked about that with Cap. I have never seen, uh, quote-unquote, a number two guy uh, decorated as as Scottie Pippen uh, portrayed so badly in terms of the migraine, um, in terms of uh, the 1.6 or 7 second, selfish. I, I have never seen this in all of my life. In the respect of Pitt was out there, I think, game six, could barely walk, um, getting knocked down on his back, trying to do whatever he he could to help that team. My point is, why was that 1.6 or 7 seconds in the documentary, so-called documentary, about Pitt? MJ wasn't even on the team. Right. Why was that in there? We handled that that year really well as a team. And then we handled it. It was over. It was over. We go on to take the Knicks to seven games. Why bring that up? That's my question. Because if you're telling a story, you want salacious aspects in there. And I don't know if Michael or Jason Hare, the director, put that in there. But if you're going to tell the story of the 90s Bulls, that's part, that's a big part of the story. Scotty not going into the game. So, as a viewer, as a consumer of the documentary, I was glad that they put it in there. I was glad they put it in, too. But you do want those salacious factors, mm-hmm. but salacious factors that aren't negative towards Michael Jordan. There wasn't anything negative about Michael. and I do, Well, I, I shouldn't say nothing because they did question him about the gambling and some of the other things. I do think that Michael should have given Scotty more credit for playing through the bad back mm-hmm. against the, the Jazz because... That that was a warrior move on Scotty's part. If Michael is going to be glorified for the flu game, then I think Scotty should be glorified for playing through that bad back. I agree. And even though there were some the uh, food poisoning game, yeah, that's right, the p- pizza game, the pizza game, <laughs> which. There's, we have more questions than answers about that. The mm-hmm. more I think about that, the logistics do not add up. I was taping a podcast yesterday, Randy. The, the number one thing that I have about this, just to quickly digress, mm-hmm. we've been around athletes. We've been around athletes when they travel on the road. There is no way the pizza delivery guys get past the lobby. Not only would hotel security not let them up to the floor, there's security on the floor where the players are are there. Not to mention, if he has that many people in the room with him, someone would have said, I am going to get the pizza down in the lobby. You know that there is security on every That's level when the when the team travels. They're in the lobby. They're at the elevator. They're there to protect these guys. There is no way that five guys with a single pizza were allowed to infiltrate that many levels of a hotel to get to Michael Jordan's door. During the finals. During the finals. There's no way. That's a great point. Thank you. I know. Inve- investigative journalism here, Randy. We need that. We need that. But again, with Michael Jordan, he did have some unfavorable things in the documentary about Scottie Pippen. But then he also said there is no MJ without Scotty. I am who I am as a player because I had a compliment like him. So he did revere him in a lot of ways as well. And I don't think that should go overlooked. Meanwhile, at the end of the day, Grant was uh, asked about the documentary and about how accurate it was. Now that the 10 episodes have aired, do you look back on it? 
it, and were you, did you enjoy it? Did you feel like nah, it was okay? How would you answer that? I would say, you know, entertaining, but, you know, we know who who was there um, as teammates that uh, about 90% of it was, uh, I don't know if I can say it on air, but BS <laughs> in terms of um, the, the realness of it, you know, as I stated uh, the other day, that it wasn't real uh, because uh, a lot of things that he said to uh, some of his teammates, that um, his teammates went back at him, but all of that was kind of edited out of um, the documentary, if you want to call it a documentary. Ouch. Ouch. And he did point out, by the way, that he the attacks on Steve Kerr and Scott Burrell and Will Perdue were part of the documentary. And then David Kaplan mentioned that uh, Ron Harper did engage with MJ successfully, and that wasn't part of the documentary. Pretty interesting. It is. But, you know, I, I can't fault MJ for it if... I think a lot of subjects of documentaries would have loved to have final say on all of this. I so, think so. If, if that option was presented, if someone was going to make a documentary on my life and the, the only way it was going to get done is if I signed off on it, yeah, of course those directors are going to do that. You're going to make that, that trade and that concession because look at the numbers that it did. And even despite it being very pro-Michael Jordan, and even though you would have liked to hear some some counterpoints to a lot of the things that he was saying. I still thought it was brilliantly done and it was amazing. And, but again, I'm not, I'm not involved in it. If someone's going to tell a story about our station and it had negative things about you and I, and we weren't able to really share the counterpoint to that or our side of the story, I would be just like Horace Grant. I would feel the same way that he does. Coming up, if Michael had that problem in Salt Lake City in 1997, would he have it today? That's next on 101 ESPN. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.